You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. If you haven't checked us out at perchperspectives.com, please do. You can find more information about the company and our story. You can sign up for our free twice-a-week newsletter or just read the newsletter on our blog. Also, if you want to get in touch about the podcast or anything else that's on your mind, um, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. Also, our biweekly reminder to please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you are listening to this podcast. Joining me this week is Amal Sinha. Um, Amal is a consulting editor at the Kootenai. He has a podcast of his own called PRC Whispers. It's about China. And he also crunches political data for fun on Twitter. He's actually done this cool thing now where he looks at my tweets and he finds the ones that have emojis where my mind is blown or where I, I don't understand what's going on. And he tracks them. And apparently they're going up month by month uh, so, because thank you, 2020. So thanks, Amal, and thanks for coming on. In the episode, we talk about whether the comparison between China and Hong Kong and India and Kashmir is a legit comparison. And it came up because I wrote that in a newsletter a little while back. And honestly, as I sort of said to Amal at the time, it was more of a throwaway line in a newsletter, but he centered in on that and he wanted to have a conversation about it. And that's what this podcast is about. It's about having cool conversations with interesting people and leaving our listeners a little smarter than when we started. So with that, comrades, let's get to the show. Uh, Remember that gender is a social construct. Uh, Not all who wander are lost. Shower the people you love with love. Please, for the love of God, wear your masks. And register to vote if you're in the United States. You still have a week to do so. Uh, Take good care, and we will see you out there. In a Perch Perspectives newsletter, I was writing about sort of the double standard globally between China and India, which is to say that China is apparently not allowed to do whatever it wants in Hong Kong. Um, and gets gets a lot of international condemnation for its actions in, in Hong Kong, which is its sovereign territory, whether you like what they're doing there or not. And I don't particularly like it. Um, and India, which uh, you know claims claims Kashmir is its sovereign territory and seems to be doing whatever it wants there and actually cracked down a lot more violently, I would call it, and used the military a lot more than China did in Hong Kong. And the reason I think that Western countries were willing to turn a blinder eye to that was because, led by the United States, the West is in this strategic long-term conflict with China. And if you're going to pick a fight with China, uh, you're going to need an ally in that fight. And India is really the only country on the board right now today that can even hope to match China in terms of um, the scale of resources available, the scale of the population. Uh, and And I think that, along with the fact that India is a democracy and there is more of an ideologically, an ideological affinity between the West and India, that I think has led countries to basically ignoring what's going on in Kashmir while calling out what's going on in Hong Kong. Now, you think this is a bad take. So why don't we start right there? Why is this a bad take? Where am I wrong? Sure. Sounds good. So in this case, um, well, first of all, I would just like to lay it out that um, liberalism is the way to go. I mean, that's what in terms of ideas we would count as a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. I would argue in this case that the abrogation of Article 370, etc., the steps taken to revoke the autonomy of the state of Jammu and Kashmir, there's a reason why I'm saying that, are to introduce more liberalism and to pacify the situation. Let's start with so two basic facts, right? So 
Kashmir is has been a real security problem. Like some estimates say 50 to 100,000 people have died in the last two, uh, two, two and a half decades. We don't have those numbers in Hong Kong. There's no active insurgency going on in Hong Kong or any cross-border terrorism related issues in Hong Kong. So I guess militarily, I, I guess Kashmir is much more, uh, I mean, it makes sense much more in, to have a military presence in Kashmir than in Hong Kong. That's step number one. Secondly, I think the steps being taken in Kashmir, or again, I don't know why people often bring up Kashmir, the term, it's Jammu and Kashmir, the, st- the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir. These are to in- introduce more inclusivity. And for that, the first one, uh, to, I, to get an idea about that, we need to go back a little bit into history about why this became an extractive system. Liberalism kind of died along the way. So, uh, just to go to get back into a little bit of history, both Hong Kong and Kashmir actually start at about the same time for the British Empire. I think the British took to Kowloon, or I forgot which were the islands they took in 1840s when the first Opium War ended. Around the same time, within a gap of ten years, the first Anglo-Sikh War ended. I think that was 1849, the the second Anglo-Sikh War. My mistake. So with that, the British took control of the territories that were controlled by the Sikh Empire and also what we now know as Hong Kong. That's the beginning of the story. Uh, the British gave, it, gave that part of uh, the Jammu, Kashmir and Ladakh, the three territories, to uh, this person named Gulab Singh, who, was, uh, who later on became the quote-unquote Maharaja of Jammu and Kashmir. And by the way, Jammu and Kashmir doesn't just include the Kashmir Valley. It includes Jammu, Kashmir, then within Pakistan, there's Gilgit-Baltistan. There's a part that China controls, which is known as Aksai Chin, and there's Ladakh, which is a more Tibetan part of Jammu and Kashmir, the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir. So the abrogation itself was a step to introduce inclusivity by removing, first of all, the extractive elements that had piled up over the last 70 odd years. Now, that has its own messy history. So I'll pause for a moment if you have any counter thoughts on this. Well, I love that the the moral of the story here seems to be we can blame the British for everything. And we could probably just leave like we don't even have to have the conversation. It was the British Empire's fault and everything is just being kind of unwound in the same way. It's ironic. I actually hadn't realized that um, in history, the Jammu Kashmir issue and the Hong Kong issue had been so close. But I often think in terms of like with US, with current US foreign policy, you go back to the early 1950s uh, and we're still dealing with US mistakes from the 1950s, right? So uh, the US participation in the Iranian revolution and the coup there, I'm sorry, not the Iranian revolution, but in the coup that that overthrew Mossadegh that eventually led to the Iranian revolution and then the Korean War, we're still dealing with both those issues today in a sense because the British Empire didn't really tie things off together well or didn't manage things well, we're still dealing with some of the same problems they were dealing with in the 1850s. I would push back a little bit though, because at least on your first point, because you talk about um, Kashmir being more of a, and I think the reason people say Kashmir is it's just a useful shorthand. Let's say that I'm, you know, uh, we can call it whatever you want. The erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir is, is kind of a mouthful to say every single time. <laughs> we but, can um, just say I, JNK, yeah. We, okay, JNK, that's fine. That's better than I'll say JNK from now on. But um, mm-hmm. The, the argument that it's more of a security issue and that India is introducing more liberal liberalism and pacifying the situation, mm-hmm. uh, there's already a lot of red flag words there. I mean, a lot of things have been done in the name of security. 
Certainly, mm-hmm. if you were, and I'm not saying I believe this, but if if I was a Chinese analyst or a Chinese official and I was arguing with you, I would say, well, Xinjiang is also a security threat. Uh, we had the riots in a room, a room key. We had, you know, China's version of 9-11. That's how they think of it. And we're just uh, making a security threat. We're bringing social harmony and peace and stability to Xinjiang. If you look at the People's Daily, when they talk about what China is doing in Xinjiang, for instance, they talk about how they're just bringing harmony and stability and giving you know Uyghurs all the things that the Chinese government possibly can. Um, and then when you start saying words like we're going to intru- introduce liberalism, we're going to pacify the situation. The US was just going to pacify the situation in Vietnam in the 1960s as well. All those words start to make me a little bit nervous. And I'm sure you can understand why. No? Mm-hmm. I do. And that's a very good point that you brought up, actually. So uh, now is the time when we can actually dig into why the system became extractive in the first place. So mm-hmm. but f- just FYI, the Chinese system and the Indian system operate very differently. Mm-hmm. China is based on a central empire and CCP still counts itself as a dynasty, not really a modern nation for all practical purposes. India operates very differently. Like when the Republic of India was formed in 1947, it was technically an experiment that many different subnational identities could survive together and still maintain a national identity sort of a thing. So over time, uh, the for the Indian government, it has always been uh, like the, the best method of ensuring quote-unquote stability and security, etc., is to just provide a separate linguistic group, their own state, their own voice, their own legislature, etc., whichever way they can have some sort of political engagement. So this has been seen over and over in history, starting from the 1956 state reorganization. The last case was, I think, the separation of the state of Telangana in 2013. I was While I was growing up, there was a big redistribution of my own home state. Like my own home state of Bihar was broken off into Bihar and Jharkhand for more uh, local self-governance. So this has been the trajectory of the Indian state, and I don't think it's so easy to change that. During the accession of... Jammu and Kashmir to India, I think in October 1947 or sometime around that, there were several issues with regards to uh, what should be the nature of the accession and what should be Pakistan's role, etc. There's a whole bunch of messy history, which I will rather not, not delve into. But the idea behind that was to maintain some sort of a, a, a temporary autonomy for that place. So that uh, once the issue is resolved between India and Pakistan, we can just remove that sometime. But the issue never got resolved for whatever reason. And that particular set of uh, rules of autonomy became an extractive setup for a few uh, big power players to uh, utilize for their own benefits. This does, did not happen in Xinjiang specifically. We don't know of any extractive system. The Communist Party itself is an extractive system as far as we know. Although India has had issues of extraction, but technically it's more liberal than uh, the regular Kashmir itself. Does that make sense? Or it, it does. You're using the word extractive a lot. Can you tell me a little bit more what you mean when you say that that uh, it's it's not it is or is not an extractive system? Uh, sure. So what is the U.S. based out of based on right? Uh, private property. You don't get as good private property in Kashmir. I cannot, I, like before uh, to August 5, 2019, I could not go and buy property in Kashmir myself. If a Kashmiri woman would marry someone who's outside Kashmir, outside JNK specifically, she would lose all her property rights in Kashmir. These are certain extractive steps that have been taken. 
if you're gay today like as of uh, august 4 2019 if you're gay you're technically outlawed so these are the uh, illiberal slash extractive methods that i'm talking about i see and you're saying that jnk basically was preserved in a state of <laughs> i guess we could call it illiberalism because um resolving some of these issues in jnk was dependent on india and pakistan resolving their issues and obviously we're all still waiting on that right yes and i don't think that's ever going to be resolved personally well I, i think we need to hack into that a little bit but before we go there i have to push back a little bit also on um you said that china is more of a dynasty and and not a modern nation and you're putting me in an mm-hmm. awkward situation here because i'm not the one normally defending the chinese uh but if <laughs> if, if i was chinese sure. i would be I would be offended by that statement. I think China is absolutely a modern nation. I think um it's imperfect and it has its own cultural and socio-political and geopolitical context in which it thinks of things, but I don't think you can deny that China is is not a modern nation. In some ways, China has become more of a modern nation, that nation part of the word than India has. I think part of what Prime Minister Modi is doing and it's not even doing some of what Prime Minister Modi represents to me is the emergence of a more coherent centralized indian nationalism which china already went through that process they already had their civil war part of what the chinese communist party was all about was about putting chinese nationalism over the diversity of the qing dynasty because there actually was a lot more um a lot more diversity in china before the ccp took power and there's actually a lot less diversity in china today than there was even 50 years ago in terms of language in terms of ethnicity um you know the, the sort of han han chauvinism has really taken things over so um i think i think it's i think if you look at china through the lens of oh the ccp is just a, another dynasty and this is not a modern nation i think you'll i think you'll reach faulty analytical conclusions about china's current behavior and how it's going to act going forward do you think that's fair or do you want to push back there i think we are talking apples and oranges here Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, I don't know where I learned this but this is something that I've grown up with is that a modern nation is a nation which has like at least a functioning bill of rights a fun- functioning free speech you have every citizen is viewed equally in the eyes of the law that's what I was talking about not industrially modern sorry Yeah yeah well you're you're not talking about a modern nation then you're talking about a liberal democracy in some ways which is not the same things and I mean lib- liberalism and the rise of liberal democracy um happens sort of in tandem with the rise of nationalism as a political force and i think one of the things we often forget especially in the west uh, is that things that these things are not necessarily the same thing uh, you can have a government that is set up just on basic principles like right uh, like life liberty property these other things or you can have a government whose job is specifically to protect a particular nation or a particular ethnic group um and the the modern nation state or the liberal democratic nation state really in some ways is a fusion of these two things and these two things aren't always the same thing because you run into trouble in a democracy where let's say 70% of the population is one ethnicity or one religion it's still a democracy but that 70% can impose their will on the minorities now that's still technically a democracy on some level but unless you have checks and balances unless you have an idea that the state is meant to preserve certain rights and certain laws over protecting certain communities um you can totally have a democracy that doesn't behave in a liberal way i think that's i mean uh what was it prime prime minister orban in hungary calls it illiberal democracy it's one of the things that's been popping up over the world a little bit so 
Um, I, I think we just have to define our, our terms there a little bit because China really is a nation in, in, in that sense, in just the, the nation sense of the word. And it has its own, China has its own approach to politics and it's going to come through with that own approach. I, I think India probably has its own approach too. I mean, I think one of the things, one of the transformations we're seeing in India right now to me is that India is trying to find a road for itself in the future, is trying to find a political system that honors its its principles of secularism and diversity and all the things that you talked about, but also honors India's history as a as a majority Hindu country and some of the things that all Indians share in common. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into the specific feature that I was talking about mm-hmm. that I intend to uh, utilize with regards to quote my quote unquote defense of uh, the actions on Jammu and Kashmir. Mm-hmm. So the one feature uh, I think I probably mentioned this, but. India survives on uh, local self-governance to a huge extent, Mm -hmm. like creation of or allowance of smaller identities over and over. So that is what guarantees local level autonomy at, at, in fact, at micro levels. Just to give you an example of this, um, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a, there's a tribe slash Aboriginal group called the Bodos. I'm I'm sure you've never heard of this, but I've never heard of this. Tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. So it's in the state of Assam. So mm-hmm. Assam has a population, I think, 30 or 40 million, something in that range. That's technically a small state by Indian standards, but the Bodos are a group of about 3 million people. So they felt that they were not represented enough. enough. In 1979 or so, they started an insurgency movement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Went on for a long time. In 2003, the Bodo Accords were signed. Half of the insurgents surrendered. A separate autonomous zone was created called the Bodoland Territorial Council or some name of this sort. Most of the insurgency problem was gone. Then a separate accord was signed, I think, earlier this year sometime, January 2020. So by now, the Bodo insurgency problem is pretty much gone. They're just happier being uh, locally self-governed based on the specific decisions they wanted to make. And that's the one thing that I that I would like to stress on is that that's how the Indian state maintains quote-unquote stability everywhere. So that's what I would argue that that's what the Indian government wants to do in Jammu and Kashmir over the long term. Does that answer your question now? That does make sense. And I, you know, I don't think anybody could, unless you're an expert on India and you study India all the time, you probably can't know all the different diversities of India. I mean, it's amazing. I can tell you, I had a huge crush on a Jane girl there for a hot minute and she didn't want anything to do with me. But uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I learned so much about Indian diversity there in that experience. But so in the example that you just gave me, um, so, but how much did that particular, you, it's Bordeaux, that's the name of them? Bordeaux, yeah. Yeah, Bordeaux. How much, how much of a choice did they get in the process of what happened? A choice as in? As in, like if they had really wanted their own independence, not just local autonomy, but if they had wanted independence, is that something that the Indian government would have been willing to conscience or consider? I don't think so. So typically, whenever any demand for independence happens, it starts with some sort of a grievance, mm-hmm. Right. And that grievance becomes a resentment and it can turn into a demand for independence later on. Mm -hmm. So in this case, there was a demand for independence because the grievance had become really bad. Mm -hmm. At least that's what the Indian experience is. That's what I have understood till now. So by the time they, when they uh, allowed a level of autonomy, uh, half of the insurgents put down their arms. I think some 3,000 or 4,000 insurgents gave up their arms. Mm-hmm. So that's how the 
the at least the resentment went away grievances obviously still exist and some of the insurgents there was another group so there are two groups the bodo liberation tigers and the national democratic front of bodoland there were two insurgent groups so the bodo liberation tigers had given up because they didn't really uh, have any issues because they were fine with the level of, of autonomy they got ndfb mm-hmm. did not give up for whatever other reasons and they i think they have also recently started giving up their in talks with the government so that's what the government always does like it, it's always on talks with different organizations at least in the northeastern part of india yeah i mean i take your point on india and china being apples and oranges they're completely different and they have completely different contexts and i think i mean they have very different challenges too the, the challenge of india is how to maintain its political system and how to maintain its identity in the context of such incredible diversity. I mean, when, when you go back to partition, go back to um, you know, Bangladeshi independence, I mean, if you go through sort of the modern history of India, it all goes back to different groups wanting their own level of independence or governance. And it's it was this it's this really ironic thing for India that it was embracing independence at the same time that you know Pakistan wanted to break off from India. And India was forced with this difficult decision of well, we're finally overthrowing the yoke of the British Empire. We finally get to do what we want to do and and self-govern and 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 have national self-determination. And yet that very experience with the British Empire tells us that it's not good to force anyone to be a part of India that doesn't want to be a part of India. How are we any different than the British Empire at that point if we start doing that, which I think is how you get, I mean, there's a long, like you said, messy history there, but that internal contradiction is sort of what leads to, to Pakistan and this, this long-running conflict that's never been solved. And it seems to me that Kashmir is left over from that and that one of the reasons someone like me uh, gets uncomfortable with what India is doing in Kashmir is because it seems that instead of figuring out what is best for Kashmir or asking uh, you know the folks in JNK what they want and giving them a full suite of options to choose from, uh, the Indian government is basically saying, actually, we know what's best for JNK. And because you're part of India, like you're just going to have to trust that we have your best interest at heart. And th- that, I think, conflicts with a lot of different things in Indian history and in the Indian political system. Mm, sounds good. So if I understand correctly, so your uh, fundamental uh, pushback in this context is that uh, the jam- the Kashmiri people are not being asked about what is good for them and India is imposing something on them. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's exactly the it's exactly the point. And I, I think one of the, it's unfair of me to compare J and K to the situation in Hong Kong in some ways because um, you know the Indian government compared to the level of control that the Chinese government exerts, it's not even close. There's no there was no moral equivalency in my argument. I was just pointing out that on these two specific issues, I think India is getting a bit of a pass. But one of the things that allows me to say that in the first place is because India has been a model and has an ideal for itself that is specifically not just going in and cutting off the internet and taking down you know, autonomous organizations and cutting off things before a conflict has been resolved. Whereas in this case, because I think Modi promised it and because it became sort of a talisman of, of, of Hindu nationalism, uh, the Indian government decided to go ahead and do it. And it seems to me that in that sense, um, in order to restore stability, um, India is in some ways having to compromise or betray what's at its core. Now, maybe you're right. Maybe that's what's best for J&K anyway. And maybe here the ends justify the means. Um, but it's still a very difficult situation for the Indian government to figure out what it's going to do, for J&K to figure out what they're going to do. And it doesn't feel to me like the people in J&K, the people who are actually affected by this, 
got to voice any kind of preference or opinion with how this was going to go down. It seemed very sudden and very externally driven, extractive, if you will, to use that word that you've used. <laughs> yeah, you got me with that term, right? I guess. So uh, <laughs> just to answer that in a slightly different context. Um, so the fundamental question, if I may just boil it down, I mean, let's separate ideology from state actions in this case. Mm-hmm. Because I think state actions are often much more prag- pragmatic than what ideology would dictate. For sure. Uh, at least in India's case, from what I understand. But uh, so the objective is, so the fundamental objective we are talking about is to ensure good self, um, self-governance and uh, like of the people of Jammu and Kashmir and that their voices are heard. Let's uh, lay that out as our fundamental aim. So I have, um, I would believe that uh, the best way out for uh, the people of Jammu and Kashmir is, I mean, obviously they they have a liberal democracy operating them. Um, I mean, under a situation of liberal democracy where they have guaranteed uh, property rights, etc. Um, if at all, let's imagine a couple of hypothetical scenarios. If they are, uh, if let's say Jammu and Kashmir becomes an independent country altogether right mm-hmm. geopolitically do you think it's going to survive uh i mean that's that's it would be very tough for it to survive in its current context exactly so that's why the other way at least uh the liberalists inside me would say that what is the other best option for them to survive in a liberal context pakistan is definitely not a good option china is not a good option Anything up north, well, it's China mostly, and let's say some Afghanistan or other Central Asian states, they're not as good options to survive under because it's a very, very geopolitically contested zone. So I personally do not see any better options around. So yeah, the I mean, best the, op- the, the mm-hmm. optimist would say, can't you create some kind of international system where J&K is considered sort of neutral ground? And could you get Pakistan and China and India to all let bygones be bygones and let the neutrality and the independence of JNK um, in some ways you know, guarantee a buffer zone between all three. But I think to your point, that would have been that would have been extremely hard, even during the heady days of globalization, when everybody was trusting each other and everything was integrating. And in the current geopolitical context, I mean, that's I, I would like to think that's. I would like to think it's possible because it's better for the world if that sort of scenario is possible. But I, it's very, very hard to imagine that being viable these days. There you go. So now the second level is: what is the best option they have? And in my opinion, the best way place where they can have their voice being heard is under the Indian context, right? So now coming to that level, what what will they do? What what can be done under the Indian context is Jammu and Kashmir has a problem. Um, now let's segment that in a very specific way. Now that we have come to this level, mm-hmm. so Jammu and Kashmir has three parts. Okay, for now, what is under Indian control? What is under Pakistani control? That has a whole different story. Um, <laughs> it's a very tragic and sad story, but we can get to that later on if you want. So what is under? So whatever is under Indian control, so Jammu, uh, Kashmir Valley, and Ladakh. So Ladakh is mostly an uh, like they're much closer ethnically to Tibetans and they have been asking for separation from the state of Jammu and Kashmir since 1948, to <laughs> be specific. Um, when the 
Article 370 abrogation was announced. The member of parliament from Ladakh gave a very, very passionate 30-minute uh, speech in the parliament. So just FYI, the state of Jammu and Kashmir was broken apart and the Ladakh was given a separate union territory status. Union territory is like whatever Puerto Rico has for America. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what they have been demanding since 1948, actually, like all, all segments of the Ladakhi society. Now, Ladakh is like quarter of a million people. So, and they feel dominated by the other parts of Jammu and Kashmir. So Jammu is 5.3 million people. Kashmir is 6.9 million people. So they have that sort of an issue that, no, we don't want to be part of the rest of the group. In fact, in 1948, they had uh, even requested that either to integrate us with some other states. Uh, the There was this organization then called the Ladakh Autonomous Hill Development Council or something, the second level, uh, like one layer below the, the chief minister. Mm-hmm. So they wanted their own uh, separation from the rest of the state. They got it this this time, like Jammu and Kashmir was bifurcated. That's one level done, handled, taken care of. They have no issues anymore. Uh, now coming to Jammu and Kashmir, the two specific regions. So Jammu has been, has had never had a problem really, like ever. Um, Kashmir is, the valley is the one that has had a problem in the past with uh, Indian governance because that's where uh, military issues have come up. That's where a lot of tragedy has happened in the past. I do understand that the Indian state has made huge mistakes there, especially in the 90s when the security situation really went bad. Now, the methodology there is, I mean, uh, there's one former Indian Lieutenant General, Mr. Sayyid Atta Hasna, and he once said that in this case, the politician is your best warrior. So the idea is to have political engagement on one level to make sure that they have a trust in the state, at least in the state that they had. So just FYI, um, the Jammu and Kashmir politicians who had been running uh, Kashmir all the time since 19, I think, 49, uh, there were just two families that were running everything, actually. And they were so universally hated that all spectrums of the Kashmiri society hated, be it the secularists, be it the far, the far-right Islamists, everyone hated them equally. So that's why there's absolutely no protest on them being locked up or them being uh, imprisoned, etc. Like nobody's protesting. It was that bad for them. So that's why once they are out of the picture, now what BJP, or rather I shouldn't say BJP, what BJP politicians uh, are trying to do as part of the state is introduce, uh, like to groom much more local level politicians who can introduce much more political engagement. And that is where I think the state building is what is being done over the next few years. There are issues, obviously, about whether it is done being done properly or what are the issues coming up, etc. But that's one part of the game. I hope that answers your question. No, it does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good point. And that helps us drill down a little bit. And it helps us, I think, get to why Kashmir specifically is such a, such a big problem or, or is focused on so much. Because... You know, the demographics of J and K are also diverse, as you said. It's not just one unit, but Kashmir is a unit where it really is majority Muslim, um, and for better and for worse. You know, over time, um, you know, the battle lines between Muslims and between Hindus and between Sikhs and between Christians. You know, all these things have hardened in recent years and decades geopolitically. So, if you're a Muslim in Kashmir and you're thinking about, you know, what sort of situation is going to be best for your state and for your local governance, 
uh, you can sort of see how they would doubt that a relationship with India in that context is going to be good for them. Because even when, you know, on the eve of partition, when, you know, Hindus and Muslims had been living in British India for a long time in relative peace and harmony with sort of, um, you know, general participation in the same, in the same political context, um, things got very bad, very, very fast. And the decades of conflict between Pakistan and between India, which is also really, you know, superimposed on that conflict between um, Muslims and between Hindus, all that seems to be getting worse now to me. So I, I think that's one of the, I mean, how, how do you move forward with giving Kashmir specifically the self-governance that it wants? Um, and how, if you're a Muslim in Kashmir, should you be thinking about um, the relationship of a Muslim majority region with India going forward? How, how do you manage that tension uh, in a time where, like I said, these sort of civilizational and religious divides are just as intense as the national ones? That's a very good argument, but I I would like to say that that argument doesn't hold a lot of uh, merit in this context. It's not at all. Uh, so let me give you a different. Uh, let me put this a different way. So if you do a survey on Jammu and Kashmir, like the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir, uh, majority of the Muslims, um, what do you call that? Surveyed have actually been. Uh, very happy with integration into India. So just FYI, Jammu, the, the region of Jammu is not actually a Hindu majority or it may be, but only a minor majority. Like there's a very significant percentage of Muslims living there. They do not have a problem. They, they're not covered in the media at all. At least in international media, it's not covered at all. Ladakh also has a 50% or close to 50% Muslim population. They're mostly in the upper district of Kargil. That they also like, they're actually the most na patriotic and nationalistic Indian people I've ever seen till now. <laughs> so this uh, this idea that it's specifically a Hindu versus Muslim or Muslim versus the rest etc. issue doesn't hold a lot of argument doesn't hold a lot of ground in my opinion. Um, so uh, like just to give you an example, uh, when in 1965 when Pakistanis tried to Pakistan tried to push intruders into uh, Indian Kashmir, it was the local Muslims who started like, you know, informing the Indian group that, hey, in the Indian soldiers that, hey, some intruders have come in, etc. So their loyalties is not as big an issue with regards to religion. It's more of a Kashmir Valley issue specifically. And within Kashmir Valley, it is more of an Islamist issue than a Muslim issue. And I'll get to that why. Mm -hmm. So Pakistan's method of pushing its influence has always been about pushing some form of Islamism. And I mean, I'm sure you have read a lot about how it happens in the Middle East. But the Pakistani method of uh, influence in this case, for example, in Afghanistan, it just started training um, Islamists who would la later on take over uh, Kabul. Today, we know them as the Taliban, but the precursor to there were several precursors to the Taliban, which were all trained in Pakistan. So th the, their method of introducing influence has always been about training the clergy. And it, like I would personally count the next step as brainwashing young men to create more trouble. And for example, the most celebrated uh, personality, there was a 22-year-old guy named Burhan Wani who was shot dead by Indian security forces in 2016, whom Pakistan even raised in the UN. That guy was a proper ISIS supporter. Like he wanted a Sharia-driven Islamic state in Kashmir. I don't think that's really something we can argue about, I would say. Mm -hmm. So that's 
one issue that it's it's an islamism versus liberalism argument within the boundaries of the kashmir valley does that answer your question yeah i i think that's a good point to raise and i mean pakistan is the weaker power between india and pakistan and always has been since the very beginning so if you are a not weaker really. power not really of course you think you think pakistan was ever stronger than india technologically and in many other ways yes yeah but i don't i i reject that the idea that that uh pakistan was ever going to be able to conquer india or threaten india's existence geopolitically to me seems a little far fetched hmm so i mean that's off, uh, that's a very long topic of debate i would say but uh, th- uh let me just put it this way that pakistan up until the 1980s was able to very seriously threaten indian security i would just put it that way well it can still threaten indian security today because it has it has its relationships with islamists and because it has nuclear weapons and a host of other things but i mean just in terms of size i mean pakistan was never going to be able to deal with with i mean maybe it could have taken parts you know muslim majority parts maybe it was going to be able to ensconce itself there but but pakistan in some ways really has to think of itself in terms of always being in a in a less secure position relative to india i think than vice versa yes that would be rather accurate yes yeah so it's i mean the only point there is that the reason that pakistan resorts to the sort of tactics that you're talking about with islamism is because they don't have a ton of other options there to to realize their foreign policies there are not you know large groups of hindus uh in pakistan for instance that the indian government is going to be able to radicalize and turn into i don't know hindu isis like that's not even a thing obviously <laughs> it's kind of a funny thought experiment to go into um but yes i take i take your point um but I, i whether religion was at the beginning of the conflict um i think it's certainly there now especially in the current context of hindu nationalism i mean i think in some ways the developments that are happening in the rest of india raise the stakes of of what's happening there and i think the the areas the parts of the world where radical islam has been attractive to young men and to young women are the places where there isn't economic opportunity where where young muslims feel like they're being ruled by authoritarian dictators who don't respect their rights and don't respect their interests um so yeah it's it's a difficult thing i would agree there actually so in this case i i do see that in the indian state has made huge mistakes in that uh especially like there was i mean i wouldn't rather i would rather not go into that history personally but yeah <laughs> there have been huge mistakes on oppression and etc like but i would say like the steps being taken now are i believe in you know making it more inclusive in that direction yeah i mean it's it's a difficult situation no matter how you look at it and i don't envy sort of the indian government um the difficult choices that it has in front of it and you know for you can criticize the modi administration all you want and many folks in the west now like to criticize they they sort of have discovered modi as a whipping boy for themselves and they like to criticize him <laughs> uh, but you yeah. know what, what you can say for him is at least he's trying something new uh, he's he's trying to resolve something that has never been resolved and the charitable interpretation is that it will be better for things long term but let let's get back to the original the original thing that you wanted to argue with me about a little bit because i think we could spend all day going into the intricacies of the the j and k conflict in india and we'll have to have you back on to talk about it at more depth because like you said there is so much history here to unpack um but you know it seems to me that 
what China and what China is doing in Hong Kong is in some ways the same thing. I'm not saying I like it. I mean, I hope folks aren't going to take from this that I'm defending China in this particular context. I'm not. I would rather Hong Kong, um, you know, have its autonomy, and I would rather all these things. You know, I would rather not have an authoritarian regime in China. But that's all personal politics, and none of that is really useful at just a basic level. Um, you know, China is the sovereign power of Hong Kong, and China gets to determine what goes on in Hong Kong. And China wasn't cracking any skulls. It didn't deploy the PLA like everybody was afraid of. Uh, they changed a law, <laughs> you know, and now they've asserted more control over a territory that is theirs um, and is recognized by international law as theirs. And it seems to me that the West goes to a very complicated place if it's going to criticize China for passing a new law in an island that is part of China and which China had to take back from the British. Uh, I think also, it, I mean, on a personal level for me, it, it makes it harder to engage with the real issue, which to me is what's going on in Xinjiang and getting to ground truth about what China is doing with the Uyghurs and trying to figure out you know, how to ch shape Chinese behavior there going forward, because that I think is, is a global issue and a global moral issue. And I, I'm afraid that sometimes we get too caught up that Hong Kong has gotten too caught up in these political ideological conflicts. And, and that's where the comparison to India came into play for me. There was no moral equivalency. Obviously, there are huge historical and cultural and specific contextual differences. But I do think that the way that the United States and even India and other countries is treating China when it comes to Hong Kong is very different than how India is treating um, J and K. And I think in both of those situations, they're just very complicated. And unless you have a clear sort of black and white political issue, you sort of have to to respect the sovereignty of the state in question there, and then and go forward there. So does that does does me modifying the point that way make you feel any better, or do you still feel like it's it's not a good point overall? Um. So from the point of liberalism, obviously, uh, I, I'm extremely uncomfortable there, and I think you just mentioned that also. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are a few other specific nuances which are being missed out. So, for example, India did not violate any agreement in this process china is actually doing that i believe so at least from the 1997 agreement they had uh i mean i'm not an expert on that personally so i believe they have violated some agreements from the nine whatever they signed with the british in 1997 so uh, as far as i understand it's like in terms of national security um national security for a typical liberal democratic state would be something different from what the CCP views as national security. I, I hear what you're saying there. It's it's one country, two systems. But the, the problem with that argument is that, I mean, certainly China never agreed not to pass a new national security law in Hong Kong, which is the thing that's got everybody upset right now. Um, and yes, it, it really does, I think, weaken the idea of one country, two systems. And yes, China said it was going to have one country, two systems for a long time. But this is China's determination to make. If it's if it's a national security law, and I mean, you sort of use the example of making, uh, you know, increasing security in J and K as one of the reasons the Indian government went forward. Again, I'm not saying this is the right argument. I, I worry that folks are going to listen to this and think that I'm that I'm some sort of d defending the People's Republic of China. I'm I'm not in this particular scenario, but I do think um, a Chinese official can make a half true argument that says. Uh, yeah, we're actually preserving the security of Hong Kong. These demonstrators were completely disrupting economic and political life in Hong Kong. And the Chinese government has a responsibility to make sure that business continues 
in Hong Kong un unimpeded. Obviously, that argument doesn't feel good to me, but they can make that argument with a straight face. It's not an insane argument, uh, unlike some of the stuff that's happening or is rumored to be happening in Xinjiang. Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, from that perspective, if you're just giving it to them in this process, I think that makes total sense then. If if at all, we do understand that our different difference of perspectives goes all the way to like just destroying liberalism completely. That's fine, <laughs> I guess. Well, what, that makes I, sense. I, yeah. I, I, just, I just don't know what liberalism there was to defend there anymore. I mean, Hong Kong is China. <laughs> the moment that, that Hong Kong was signed over to China, it was signed over to the rule of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that the British and the Americans and everyone else were hoping that um, liberalism and capitalism was going to liberalize the Chinese government. And that was a stupid thing to think because China was always going to be China and it was always going to do things its own way. Um, but, you know, it's theirs. Like, wh wh what exactly are you going to do unless you're going to go in and, and demand that Hong Kong have independence or have independent rule? Um, you know, it, it all seems to me to be um, an ideological point about the Chinese government. Um, rather than anything specifically about what is best for Hong Kongers or thinking about what's best for Hong Kong going forward. And in that sense, I, I can feel that same sort of thing happening with the J and K argument as well. I'm sorry, I didn't get this point. point. So, can you... Sure. I mean, just that, um, j just that there, I, I don't understand what, you shouldn't be expecting China to defend the principles of liberal democracy in Hong Kong. That's, that's an unfair expectation. The moment that Hong Kong became a part of China, it was a part of China. Um, and I think that the British and the Americans were hoping that um, China joining the WTO, um, engaging in more open and capitalist economic policies, uh, reaching some of these international agreements like Hong Kong, others, that this was going to liberalize China. And I think that was always a faulty assumption. China was not going to be liberalized. China was going to develop on its own particular course. Um, and it seems to me there's a line between allowing a country to develop on its own course versus you know calling out when there is some kind of atrocity or some kind of act that happens that violates global sensibilities or global norms. Um, and I guess I, I just struggle with with the Hong Kong issue because as much as I, I you know I mourn the loss of the old Hong Kong as other people do, I, I feel like that's China's decision. I feel like it's being used as a political ideological point and not, to actually engage with China as another sovereign nation and express real concerns about Chinese behavior uh, in other parts of China that I think are even scarier. Yes, that is true. That is very accurate. I would say it's like it was a huge blunder slash disaster. I mean, I personally do not like President Nixon, President Nixon's activities because, well, uh, being a liberal democracy, he was defending uh, Pakistan in 1971. So that's there. <laughs> Well, yeah, but I mean, there, that, that's the other, I mean, and you talked a little bit about, about ideology at the beginning of this, because there's ideologic, there's ideology and then there's state action. And you sort of correctly diagnose that ideology is, I mean, there are countries and there are policies that are ideologically driven. I'm not one of these folks that says everything is geopolitics and everything is pragmatism, but I would say more often than not, you know, the state does something that it thinks is in its best interest. And then ideology is, is, is superimposed on top of it to justify it or to accuse the other side of being the enemy. Um, and I think in that particular case, I mean, Nixon was one of the most apolitical, pragmatic, ruthless, and ultimately criminal um, leaders the United States ever had because everything was a zero-sum game. And it didn't matter to him what the ideology was in China. The bigger issue was the Soviet Union and coming to some kind of arrangement 
with China was going to be worth it for him in the in the context of the balance of power with the Soviet Union. You can see that in poli- in sort of Nixon administration policies throughout Asia, not just in relation to Pakistan and India. I mean, you know, we, we can go to Cambodia if we really want to go down a dark rabbit hole of quote unquote American liberal democracy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. So I don't know that we've actually resolved anything here. I feel like I came a little in and you came a little in, Amal. Do you feel like we're any closer to figuring this out or are we just stuck where we began? I mean, I think we still hold our original positions. Um, we do understand each other's perspectives a lot better now. At least we have much more clarity about what each side meant when yeah. we said that this argument holds or doesn't hold. Yeah, I, I find myself almost, um, I don't know that I hold the same position. I think that um, it's also tough. Like the the Perch newsletter, um, you know, it comes out twice a week. It's free. It's, it's something that we're basically using as a marketing tool for the, the consulting company. And there is a certain level of nuance you can't get into in a thousand word piece. Uh, my, my editor is always, uh, uh, listeners will, will remember that Cole Altum, who used to be a regular guest on the GPF podcast that I did stuff with, Cole used to always say that um, no matter what I'm writing, whether it's a thousand words or two, 200 words or whatever it is, I always write 400 more words than I need to. Um, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. The, the point is that when you have a thousand words and you're trying to, to create a piece of content that is pithy and clever and insightful and helps the reader understand something, you, you end up shortchanging things. Um, and you end up having to get rid of nuance and having to make points. And I think that in that context, I was making the point about China and India because I was making a specific point about the double standard, I think, that is happening between uh, in the West, between China and India. And also to make the point that I think that the United States especially, but not just the United States, um, is not quite understanding that India is also an independent country, a sovereign country with its own interests. And it's not going to sign up for British Empire 2.0 and just do whatever the United States wants in the context of China. I see India as a rising power of its own that is going to assert its geopolitical interests abroad and its domestic sovereignty and power at home in its own way. And expecting India to sign on to some kind of blindless anti-China coalition, I think that at a geopolitical level, that's a mistake because I just don't think that India is going to participate that way. That was the point I was more driving towards with the comparison Um, And so I I wouldn't actually defend the comparison um, to the extent that I had before. I just actually thought this was a really interesting conversation starter that allowed us to get into a lot of interesting things. But I think where I fall at the end of this is that it's an impossible comparison just because the contexts are so different and because there is so much nuance and historical complexity and specific cultural context and sociopolitical context in each one of those issues. Um, that when you extend the metaphor beyond that very narrow sort of way that I was saying in that very specifically and um, artificially short piece that I had to write, um, you know, I might I might do things differently, and I certain wouldn't I certainly wouldn't use that framework to to if I was really diving in in deep in trying to think about some of these issues. Sounds good. Although here's a quick question for you: when you mention double standards, the term for the mm-hmm. two contexts from at least the Western perspective. Mm-hmm. What a basis are you taking? Like, what is it being judged? Like, which lens is it being judged from in this case? Just that um, the, the double standard. So the argument there was that there is some similarity between China's actions in Hong Kong and India's actions in JNK. Um, and that because of, and this goes back to the ideology state actor point, 
uh, because the United States is in this larger strategic conflict with China and because the United States has a real ideological disagreement or a budding ideological disagreement with the Chinese government, it was willing to make a bigger deal out of the one issue, whereas because it is courting India for a trade deal and for geopolitical alignment and for a host of other things, it was really willing to be softer and not go after India quite as hard as it went after other countries. I mean, countries have double standards all the time. There is no country whose foreign policy is completely consistent, right? (laughs) American foreign policy has has hardly been consistent uh, in the world. I mean, under any administration, I would challenge folks to find any context in which United States foreign policy has actually been consistent and has actually lived up to its ideals. Um, but, But that's what I mean about the double standard. And the double standard there, again, is about the United States pursuing a partnership with India because it thinks India is a valuable partner in the context of a strategic conflict with China. And again, I, I just think it's a mistake for the United States to think that India is going to do whatever the United States wants. Um, I, I think that the United States is thinking in terms of India as a junior partner and that India is just going to go along because India, the United States has things that India wants. And I just don't think that that's the version of India that exists right now. I think that India really is becoming more coherent internally. It's becoming more ambitious abroad, and it's going to be equally pragmatic. It's not just going to sign up for all these things because the United, because you know, Modi and Trump got on a stage and you know had hugs and had their bromance and all this other stuff. And I just think that's a fundamentally short-sighted way of looking at it. So that's that was long-winded of me, but that's the double standard I'm talking about. That at this very high level, you know, in the United States, foreign policy-wise, China's bad and India is good, and I just. I, I, yes. I, like, um, I like to problematize that because I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Jacob, let me make one last attempt at convincing you in this case. Sure. <laughs> so I, um, I think I'm convinced, but go ahead, continue to pile it on. I mean, I like just to sort of uh, add a capstone to the argument that you made initially. So there are three ways these two actions can be judged as far as I can see right now, mm-hmm. I, at least from the Western perspective. So either it is good for the West geopolitically or it is good for the west um ideologically like it is following the idea the ideology the west hopes for Mm -hmm. or it is good for the individual states in whatever way they want to either china or india okay Mm -hmm. so being good for the for the individual states geopolitically i think that makes total sense whichever reason india finds to uh, revoke Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir's autonomy or China finds a reason to revoke Hong Kong's autonomy. Ideologically speaking, I think as we have discussed and I made an attempt to uh, prove that this is going more towards liberalism than less. Right? Mm-hmm. Then finally, geopolitically for the West, I think it it still is because it technically, um, it, like it can be viewed as a very anti-China move in a way because like right now what's happening in Ladakh, the current standoff with the people's liberation army mm-hmm. that would not have been so easily possible if Ladakh were not a separate union territory by now. Like there would be a lot more trouble that India would be facing. So even geopolitically, I see that this is more aligned with what the West wants. So that's why I don't see <laughs> where the argument holds now. Well, yeah, because what China is doing in Hong Kong is not geopolitically, ideologically good for what the West wants. But I take yes. your point. Also, when I when I wrote the Pacific article that sparked this conversation, um, the China India border conflict hadn't happened yet. 
Um, so yes. that, that is also <laughs> kind of another variable that we could spend another 10 hours talking about probably. Um, but that also <laughs> obviously, that obviously complicates things. And I mean, I think one of the reasons that J and K, and this is actually probably the, the reason in which um, a J and K in Hong Kong um, comparison is most ill-suited, which is to say that you have multiple great powers and middle powers competing over territory in J and K with conflicting territorial claims. Um, that's just not true in Hong Kong. <laughs> you don't have yeah. outside powers competing over Hong Kong and such intense um, internal rivalries and geopolitical rivalries. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of a different thing altogether. Whereas, like you said, J and K, there's the actual J and K issue, which is complicated enough on its own. And then you have to get into, you know, there's the China Pakistan relationship, there's the India Pakistan relationship, there's the triangle of all of them, there's how the United States goes into this, there's the Islamism component mm-hmm. of it and the religious conflict component. And then you've, you know, you mentioned Tibetans and see, I mean, there's a whole ethnic component as well. Um, it's mm-hmm. just a powder keg sort of waiting to happen. And that's why, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see if this was the right move. I think a lot of Indian governments have been, um, and, and Pakistani governments in China, they haven't known what to do with J and K and we'll see if this turns out well, but the Modi, the, the one thing the Modi government cannot be accused of is lack of initiative. They definitely saw that that the the status quo wasn't good and that past behavior wasn't good and they're trying something new. Um, and I guess the the one thing I'm sure we can both agree on is that we hope that this is good for the people actually living in J and K. I hope that they have a, a, a better semblance of political and economic and social stability as a result of this. Um, that's maybe a naive thing to hope in the current context, but that's what it's all fundamentally about, about people um, you know, having a better context to live in. That's, that's why I do the work I do to try and get to that sort of point. So I, I hope that we can both agree on that. Yes, we definitely agree. And again, I would still lay a doubt that I don't know if the Indian state is, ca- state is capable of doing that. I just hope it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. we can hope that it is, and we'll try and hold it to its own, to its own liberal lofty principles that you've laid out here. Amal, thank you so much. I thought this was a great conversation and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, well, I don't know. I, I'm curious. Sometimes things are controversial that I didn't think were going to be controversial. And sometimes things are the opposite is true. So I imagine that we've touched on a lot of hot button topics here. And I imagine that some listeners will say that this is controversial. I just want to close by saying that's the whole point of this podcast. I like to have folks on and have interesting conversations and try out different ideas. And, you know, Amal, thank you for being generous with, with your, not just with your time, um, but, you know, being willing to engage in an argument, being willing to engage in a discussion and, and, and sort of having those points back and forth, I think it's super important. And if folks are listening to this and getting offended, um, maybe stop and go read a book or something. This is two folks having a conversation about something that's super important going forward. And these types of conversations are the only way I think we actually move forward as a society. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. 
Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.